Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am flying solo as a host today. Although you will certainly hear from Derek and Johanna soon, because I am pleased to report uh, that for the foreseeable future, we should be back to a much more regular schedule of releasing podcasts, hopefully in the weekly range or so. Uh, I know it's been a bit of a dry spell for us. Uh, it's been quite the hectic term. It has been for me. Um, hopefully we'll be able to share a little bit more about that in the near future. Uh, but again, the good news is right now that we're, we're settling into some more recording. Um, and today will be a, the first of those. Um, and it's actually a much more topical recording. I'm going to be talking to Ben Natan of SB Nation about the NFL draft, which is taking, which started taking place last night. It's going to continue today. This is Friday, this evening, and then we'll conclude tomorrow on Saturday. And we hope to get it out to you as soon as possible so that you can catch up on our thoughts. Um, so if you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate it as always, if you would, uh, you know, follow us on social media, on Twitter, especially, um, if you would subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts uh, or anywhere else to get your podcasts, and uh, if you can rate the show, leave a review, all that sort of thing. Uh, who knows? You know, Elon Musk uh, takes over Twitter and transforms that platform. We may have more trouble connecting with you there. Um, so, any other way you can kind of um, you can connect with us um, and and help us share the show with more folks who are concerned with issues of harm exploitation, and justice in the context of high-performance sport, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ben Natan is a writer and actor who covers the NFL draft for SB Nation's Bleeding Green Nation uh, and writes generally on issues around football and sport for SB Nation. Ben, pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, listen, what, what we're here to talk about today um, is the NFL draft, and that's because last night marked the beginning of the 2022 NFL draft, uh, and the draft is, of course, something that you cover for a living. But obviously, we're not here to break down your mock drafts or analyze the picks for the Eagles. Um, what I want to talk about today is how we can think about the NFL draft from a labor and harm standpoint. That is, how it fits into the broader system of exploitation and plantation dynamics that is U.S. football. Um, now, perhaps given that I'm sure we have some listeners who are relatively unfamiliar with the NFL and the draft in particular, Maybe could you start by just explaining what the draft actually is and what player acquisition might hypothetically look like in a different model? Yeah, of course. So the NFL draft is a is a system of player acquisition that started in the 1930s uh, in the in professional football. It used to be a you know dozens or dozens of rounds where you know players would just get picked and picked and picked. It got shortened to seven rounds uh, over the last couple of years, uh, like 20 years. Um, and what that, what the model actually is, is it's a model supposedly to uh, promote parity in the league. So the worst teams in the league get the highest picks in every round of the draft. And that gives them priority on theoretically uh, the highest quality college football players. Um Obviously, you know, we, we're, we're going to get more into conversations about how this takes away agency from the players, but that's like 
the basic model where the worst teams get the highest picks. Obviously, they have the ability to trade those picks if they wanted to uh, for all sorts of assets. Uh, but that's the the general model. Okay. So now that we have those nuts and bolts out of the way, let's get right at it. Why does the NFL draft hurt players? How does the lack of agency, as you put it, that players have in the draft model impact wage dynamics in their first year in the league? But I think also beyond that, how does it impact their career trajectories as a whole? So up until 2010, there was no, quote, rookie wage scale. Rookies could negotiate contracts like any other player um, who was looking for a new contract. And up until 2010 was the last year that this model was still in place, they could negotiate these really big, these really big exorbitant contracts, you know, even though they had never played a down of professional football or or NFL football, rather. Uh, And in the the next collecting collective bargaining agreement, uh, the owners kind of won out and you had this implementation of a rookie wage scale. So rookies, um, depending on where they're picked in the draft, you know, down to the round, down to even, you know, top five picks have a different wage scale than, you know, the guys who get drafted 10th or 11th. Uh, there is a max amount of money that they can make um, over the course of their first NFL contract. and the later you go in the draft, the less money that they are able to make. And throughout the whole draft, there's only so much that they can negotiate within that framework. There's only so much more money that they can get or so many more guarantees that they can get within that framework. Uh, so what that does is you're suppressing the wage of new labor, but also that has a massive impact on veteran players and the values of their contracts as well. Why would a team want to pay, you know, a big contract to a guy looking for his second deal in the NFL, you know, a 26, 27-year-old player, when they could go to the draft and get a much cheaper player at that same position and and theoretically, you know, not have that much of a fall off uh, in terms of performance in addition to their teams? There are certain players or certain positions in the NFL that have a more are considered more, quote, replaceable And because of that, you don't see those players usually get uh, big second contracts. And they're always kind of living in the world of of that second or third tier contract in the NFL because of this new, this relatively new labor dynamic that suppresses the wages of not only rookies, um, but also of uh, of veteran players. Now, in, in terms of how the draft actually hurts players from like a career perspective, if you have teams that are consistently picking, at the top of the draft, it is most likely that those are not organizations that are being run well. You have a couple teams across the league that are considered kind of um, basement level teams that have been pretty much bad uh, for at least the last 10 or 15 years. And, and, you know, that's that can change sometimes. And, And, you know, over the last few years, we've seen teams like the Cleveland Browns come back into relevance. We've seen teams like the Buffalo Bills come back into relevance. But typically, if you have a team that is consistently doing poorly, there's some sort of like deep organizational failure going on. Um, And that typically comes down to ownership. Now, the Buffalo Bills, being a better football team over the last few years, probably has something to do with the fact that they brought new owners in who wanted a completely fresh new start. And this isn't to like cape for the owners, but rather say that the destiny of a football team is very much tied to the competency of the people who are owning the football team. So 
if you have these teams that are consistently doing poorly and consistently, you know, having bad front offices and bad coaching staffs, and then you are drafting young players into those into those situations, those players are immediately set up to fail uh, more so than they would be if they were drafted in, in the later, you know, the, the later parts of the draft where, you know, better, more successful teams are drafting them. So this not only are you, you know, suppressing the wages of the players, but you're also removing their agency in terms of determining where they can go. Uh, and by doing that, putting them in positions that might not be necessarily amenable to their skill sets, you know, their personalities, where in the country they actually want to be relative to their families. I mean, there's been situations where guys kind of fail because they have no personal roots in the city that they get drafted to. Uh, they don't have family, they don't have friends. And, and that's, you know, lacking that social infrastructure for, you know, we're talking about 20, 21, 22 year old men. Uh, that can be really disastrous for like personal development and thus, you know, how that actually impacts their careers. So the draft has a, has a multi-tiered impact on players, uh, both young and veteran uh, in, in, the, in the NFL. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and I think that, that last point actually about, you know, just, just <laughs> sort of the humanity of players, right? Like it, where you live, um, it's, it's not just about uh, your, your athletic pursuits. You know, it has so much more to do with people's lives. And, and at that age, it makes an especially big difference. But I, I wanted to also circle back on something that you were saying earlier, because I think it was really important. Um, the way in which teams, um, like the fact that the, the rookie wage scale um, and the fact that the, like the draft sets those early contract rates at a lower level, that has an impact on more senior players as well, right? Because it undercuts their wages. And you were saying that a team will often um, choose to go with a younger player uh, and, you know, cast off an older player because they're going to be on the hook for paying that older player more because the older player has more access to a form of freer agency and can negotiate a higher contract. Yes. Um, and, that, and that, of course, makes sense from the standpoint of, like, running it as a business. But the thing that it also made me think about is that seems to be a particularly egregious problem in the context of a sport like football, specifically, where physical harm is built into the work itself, right? Like, it's not just that you're going to be paying, you know, you, you would choose to pay less for the younger player, but there's also the fact that the younger player has a fresher, less damaged and destroyed body than the older player, right? So it would seem to me that actually players have their most capacity in many cases to produce value when they are younger. And if they're producing more value via performance when they're younger, you would hope that they're being compensated the most at that point too, right? So there's some kind of correlation between the value they're producing for the team and the value that they are themselves taking home. But that's completely reversed in this dynamic because the players are receiving these minimal wages in the earlier parts of their career when they're potentially most productive. And once they finally move out of that and have the ability to negotiate a longer, like a more lucrative contract, well, their bodies may be breaking down and they may not be able to actually, right, earn those bigger contracts. And in the NFL, those contracts are non-guaranteed. So that means that if their bodies do break down after they earn the big contract, they don't actually see all of it. Is that a fair appraisal? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, once you get into the 26, 27, 28-year-old players, they're, they're going to be more injury-prone. They're going to have a little bit more mileage on their bodies. So, you know, there is there is a risk factor for them where it's like, okay, they're, we're, they're signing these big contracts and now they have to be 
you know, hoping that they're going to be getting a lot of guaranteed money because in the NFL, typically contracts are not fully guaranteed to the players. And, and that that might be something that we see change over the next few years as, as players start to. And we are we, we are definitely seeing a movement of kind of uh, awareness from players on, on, you know, how much they are getting taken advantage of by the league, especially compared to other leagues, uh, you know, and the NBA, you know, not not without its own problems, but the NBA does fully guaranteed contracts, uh, and right. and the and the nature of their collective bargaining agreement is you know some of the mid tier NBA contracts really put the like top tier um, NFL contracts to shame, which is really something that you know I mean it's almost like memeified on 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 you know kind of the sports media world and sports Twitter world. And I think NFL players are certainly waking up to that, and you're seeing contracts that are having higher guarantees. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the calculus that teams are making. We are we are getting cheap labor from younger, you know, fresher players, and we can cast them aside the moment that they want more money, and also the moment that injury becomes more likely. Yeah, it's a, it's a brutal model, and I'm just thinking even like. If you compare it to a sport like baseball, which I think also has a really punitive system for younger players, right? They have their own draft. They have the minor league system, which is a whole other kettle of exploitation right. fish. Um, but then we also have the fact that, you know, baseball, because it's such a technical game, there's a way in which like, okay, if, even if it takes six years for you to hit the open market in baseball, it may be that six years into your professional career, um, you are reaching your peak at that point, right? And so there's a way in which you may have a you know, considerably longer career after that because those technical dynamics are such an important part of the game. Um, and it's just, it just looks completely different in football, uh, I think. And, and that's why, like, my, my understanding was even at Alabama, um, they started sort of, this is a, already a few years back now, um, but, like, they started platooning their running backs, right? And it was like, instead of that being historically seen as a bad thing, because it's like, oh, I have less opportunity to showcase myself for the pros, right? It's like, well, actually, if there are two of us doing the work, that means I'm getting half the reps, and that means my body's taking half the abuse. Yeah. So there's actually a huge appeal to that platoon model, as long as you're getting the exposure that an Alabama, for instance, would give you, right? You're better off, because that means that those, all those reps that you were losing in college for unpaid labor, um, you can at least maybe use those reps, essentially, in the NFL. Yeah, I, I think it definitely changes the consideration of college athletes. You know, I think for for a while it was like, okay, well, I'm I'm picking the place where I can get the most playing time. Whereas I think now there's almost like a hope that like, okay, well, I'm going to be sitting behind some really good players for a year or two, and then I will get my time to shine. I will look really good. And I'm coming from a school with such good reputation that it'll necessarily and positively impact my, you know, draft positioning. Um, so I think that's definitely been a consideration. I think Alabama Alabama is very interesting because the the dynamics of their player output has certainly changed. Uh, in the early 2010s, they had a, a reputation where they were producing like physically maxed out players. Uh, a lot of the players that they that were coming out of Alabama were not like improving in the NFL and and typically oh. would be hurt like getting hurt a lot in their early in their careers and. What that was attributed to was the the way that they were trained and the way that they practiced was so intense that you had, you know, 19-year-old athletes performing at the level of like a 23-year-old. Um, and that was coming through like intense physical training, uh, intense practice. 
And then you, you factor in the element where it's almost an inverse of this, where players would be practicing and playing while they were hurt because they knew that there was a five-star recruit sitting behind them mm -hmm. who could take their job at any moment and you know really yeah. affect their the path of their career. And that's kind of shifted in recent years. I, I think it's I think you know colleges or you know kind of like these bigger programs um, and the athletes themselves have kind of embraced the fact that they can kind of like wait their turn. And I, you see a lot less of that kind of like maxed out factor coming from, you know, these bigger schools. But that was definitely something that was happening in the early 2010s. Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, I mean, you know, the definition really of like that, that kind of overtraining is, a, you know, a form of abuse and exploitation. And it's just so egregious in the context of college where they're not getting paid for it. No, absolutely. Um, so I'm glad you I'm really glad you highlighted that. So let's actually talk a little bit more about like the, the kind of college pro connection here. Because, um, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up is an observation Derek and I have come across repeatedly in researching for our book, The End of College Football, and talking to former college football players who've gone on to play in the NFL. These players told us, because the actual working conditions they experienced in the NFL were incredibly similar to those in college, right? And you've just been laying that out for us, right? I mean, that, your, your discussion of what was happening in the early 2010s at Alabama and other schools like that, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, but of course, in the NFL, there's actually less work overall in some cases because there's no more academic obligations, right? So because of all of that, the feeling for these players that we talked to of getting an NFL paycheck was largely one of immense relief. That was the word they used, relief. Even though, and this is important too, they weren't confused about the cutthroat labor dynamics in the NFL. They had no illusion whatsoever about the fact that the NFL was a business that was commodifying and dehumanizing their labor. That was their reality of their experiences, and they were well aware of it. Um, but nonetheless, it still felt like a tremendous relief to get that paycheck based on the fact that they weren't getting in college. This is something of a long preamble to get around to the question I want to ask, which is, do you think, perhaps, that players may be more amenable to the draft model you described, a draft model that is clearly hurting their interests, right, um, from a labor and exploitation standpoint? because of the years of conditioning in college that sort of nevertheless makes it seem more appealing in comparison to that raw plantation dynamic that they just come from. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a conditioning that goes, in, like a labor conditioning that goes into, I, I would say all athletes, that the work that you do now, you know, if it's a high school athlete or a college athlete, will eventually pay off with some sort of professional career and it it rationalizes intense amounts of work and exploitation that these kids really are able to be put through because they know that the light at the end of the tunnel is the NFL draft um the the ability to get an NFL contract no matter how big is going to pay off all of the time that they've spent you know in the gym in the film room on the field uh, in the classroom. And, and I absolutely think that there's a, a very deliberate conditioning and I, and I don't want to get too ahead of, I know that we kind of have a, uh, we, we have an agenda set, but I don't want to get too ahead of it. I think that's what one of the many reasons that a lot of college coaches are so afraid of, you know, what, uh, NIL benefits would do for players. Mm -hmm. What, um, you know, any sort of recognition of, you know, them being employees would do for players because it makes them realize that they've always actually had value. They're not, they don't have to build their value up 
in order to eventually get the NFL paycheck. They have inherent, they have value inherent to their talent, inherent to the hard work that they do. Uh, and I think, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old players getting the, that idea in their head really scares uh, college coaches and athletic programs because it, it could flip the entire dynamic of the sport on its head and the, and the, the entire power dynamic of the sport on its head. But, and I, but I do think that there, this is the reason that there is so much mythology around the NFL draft. I, I think that that's why they're, you know, the NFL draft wasn't always a primetime thing that was happening. You know, it used to just kind of happen Saturday and Sunday, you know, late in March and, you know, it would, the results would come out in the newspaper, but there was really no TV coverage of it. But now they've pushed it back to late April in order to string out a media process that is, I mean, way, way too long and way, way too drawn out. But it's so they can have all of these micro events so they can talk about the draft and do mock drafts and have these big exhibitions and, you know, really try to turn this into a primetime event. And that's, you know, there's there's its own profit motive within that, obviously, but we cannot discount the myth-making that goes into the NFL draft and what that does in order to create this light at the end of the tunnel for, you know, high school athletes, college athletes who are putting their bodies on the line every single day for, for you know, functionally no compensation whatsoever from the colleges that they are working for. That's a great point. Like, I do think we have to underline the fact that in all, pretty much all of the most extreme sites of exploitation in the context of sport, at least in North America, a huge part of what enables that, right? And it's like partly ideological and it's partly structural, but it is this sort of golden carrot idea, right? And it was exa that's exactly what Dirk Hayhurst talked about, uh, the former minor league baseball player, and also um, he was an MLB player as well, and broadcaster when we talked to him. Um, he was highlighting the fact that like, that's exactly what enables the exploitation in minor league baseball is this idea that one day you will make it to the major leagues and everything kind of revolves around that for the player. Right. And there's like an ideological component because the people who make it, it's like they deserve to make it. They've earned it. There's this sense of like a, a, a sort of rite of passage that's occurring. And it's that idea that there's a future waiting for you. That's going to be better than the present that, that seduces people into accepting what are absolutely unacceptable conditions in the present moment because they're thinking ahead to what the future might look like. And it allow, allows for these absolutely extreme forms of coercion and abuse in those so-called minor league sites. Now, obviously, the, like college football, let's say, is a minor league when it comes to the experience of the players. Um, there's nothing minor about it in terms of the amount of money that's being produced in that system for other yeah. people who are involved, obviously. Um, but the other thing that I'm also thinking about that I think is related here is, you know, you know, a perfect example for all this is the experience that Urban Meyer had, right? The longtime uh, University of Utah, Florida, and then Ohio State coach in college football, tremendously successful, uh, notoriously abusive, quite frankly. Uh, and he finally gets a gig in the NFL at Jacksonville last year, right? And it was just a nonstop kind of parade of, you know, mistakes. Uh, and, you know, humiliations, frankly, for Meyer last year. But what was, I think, what sort of, what brought all of those gaffes together was the fact that he was trying to treat NFL players 
the way he had always treated college players. And in college, it worked because those players had no power whatsoever, right? It's not, again, it's not, I don't think this is, we don't want to think that like these players are dupes in college or something like that. It has nothing to do with them like not understanding unfairness or abuse. It has to do with power, right? Like very simply, it has to do with power and an accurate understanding of how much power they have and the ability that they have to push back when they're being treated in an abusive way. And in college, there's a very, under, there's a very clear understanding that they don't have that power. That's the status coercion. But in the NFL, the players are unionized, right? There's, they're paid. There's a way in which the players know that a coach can't do things to them, like kick them. I mean, he literally kicked someone at one point, one of the players, Urban Meyer. Um, you just can't do that and get away with it. And the players, between like just pushing back in the moment or leaking things to the press, right? They made Urban Meyer's life kind of hell last year, and he's no longer the coach of Jacksonville. Um, I don't know. This is just sort of a, a long kind of meditation on what you were saying, but would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a big, it, it, it's a big difference between the college and the NFL, like you'd said, where college athletes, you know, they, are, they have a scholarship being held over their head. You know, their access to a college degree and probably more important to them in the moment, their access to putting their talents on display on a large stage are constantly being held over their head um, in exchange for obedience um, and a willingness to accept a certain level of exploitation. And, you know, Urban Meyer was hugely successful, won multiple national championships at multiple schools. Uh, but I mean, that, that's, I mean, we don't have to get totally into it, but that, that's a man who yeah. had trouble follow him everywhere he went uh, when he was in college. And there are stories about the things that he would allow uh, go on under his, you know, under his tutelage and the, the, the kind of behaviors that he would encourage and, and kind of uh, overlook from players that followed them into the NFL. I mean, that, that is a man who does not care about, you know, being any sort of like leader in a moral sense. Um, he is as zero. Although, although we did teach a course on leadership at Ohio state. Yes. I would have loved to be a fly <laughs> on the wall in that, in that, in, in that situation. But I mean, this is a man who perfectly encapsulates the cutthroat zero sum mentality of college football and, you, you know, presiding over, you know, a team of, 18 to 22 year old players and what that does to a man's brain. And then what that does when he tries to take that same mentality to the NFL, where, like you said, these players are unionized. These players are, have a lot of money. These players have agents and, and allies in the media. You know, these guys, I mean, there, you know, there's plenty to be said about how labor dynamics in the NFL need to improve and have so much room to improve, but these are generally just much more empowered and also like older and wiser, you know, people like we're talking about like 28 year old professionals who like they're, they've put up with coaches their whole life and they've probably dealt with enough coaches in the NFL to know that they won't accept shit from, you know, some guy who's never coached in the league before and only won, you know, two games in his first season. You know, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Players aren't going to just, you know, keep uh, respect onto a coach just because they're uh, that person is their coach. That's not how it works in the NFL relative to how it works in college football. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, well, let's come back a little bit to the draft, actually, because there's some really important parts of this process that we haven't gotten into yet. Um, and I think that for people, especially those who are unfamiliar with what the NFL draft actually means, and you, you've been kind of implying some of this, but 
you know, it's not just a situation where you play your college football season, the season ends, they draft you, and then you start your NFL career. There's a real sort of interstitial space there that is extremely important, what we might call the draft process itself. Um, can you just sort of explain for listeners who are unfamiliar what that prospect evaluation process is from the sort of exhibition games to the infamous combine? Yeah, so the I've been I've been covering the NFL draft since I was I've been covering the NFL draft professionally, I should say, since I was 18 years old. So I've become extremely accustomed to how every draft cycle is kind of the same. And it all starts in late summer, you know, as college football hype starts back up again and NFL teams are in in camps and in preseason, you start to see articles come out kind of previewing the college season. And, you know, during the year you get mock drafts and it just kind of builds and builds and builds. And then the end of the NFL season happens, you know, you have the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl ends, there's like a one week media Super Bowl hangover that happens. And then you jump right into draft season. And there is like a media complex to that where you have these exhibition games and what those are, are non, you know, they have nothing to do with the NCAA. They have nothing to do with like proper college football competition. They are kind of all-star games bringing in top level college prospects. They are all seniors. That's, that is like the one component they have to have graduated uh, from their respective colleges to participate at this point that those are the rules. Um, And there are multiple exhibition games with these kind of high profile draft prospects where they get to kind of intermingle with college uh, with uh, NFL coaches and NFL front offices. And they kind of get to show off their skills in in a slightly less controlled environment where, you know, they're out of the context of whatever scheme that they were in in college. And, you know, it it could be um, division two or or FCS level players, which are the FCS is the lower level of division one college football uh, playing with FBS level players and, and really big school players playing with really small school players. And, you know, there is some utility to it from like an NFL evaluation standpoint. But I mean, the gist of that is that these players are playing extra games and are going through NFL practices uh, for about a week in this kind of completely new environment. So teams can get an evaluation of how they do in these in, in these specific environments. And then this, of course, is a lead up to the combine, uh, which is, you know, an exhibition of these players' athletic abilities, and then they're run through a bunch of drills uh, relative to whatever position that they play. And, you know, obviously the combine itself is rife with, with, with its own problems in terms of how players are talked about how they're kind of exhibited on screen. I mean, the fact that the combine is televised at all kind of speaks to, you know, what sort of, you know, voyeurism and and like commodification and objectification these players are being put through. Um, And yeah. Okay. Let's get in, let's get into that more actually, because you're going, you're going where I want to go. I wanted to, I was going to ask you next, what makes this evaluation process so dehumanizing for players? And then also, what is draft speak in connection to that? So just, yeah, keep going with what you're going, but I want to really focus in on that aspect. Yeah, so I think it's like these players are really just getting boiled down to, you know, their bodies and and the ability of their bodies. And the ways in which they're talked about 
you know, as, you know, the, the word raw comes up a lot when talking about mm-hmm. college athletes, uh, a word that I hear, I've heard a million times. And I myself, I'm trying to get like very much get away from, uh, because you're really detaching, you're really detaching the person's like athletic abilities from who they are. Uh, and that's yeah. generally how the, how like draft speak functions is it functions to really like, like distill who a player is in a few words and it's typically like extremely dismissive of like what they do like quote poorly um and i mean it's it's extremely i think it's extremely harmful because players are talked about like they're pieces of meat they're and they're talked about like they are you know toys for nfl teams to collect and play with um, rather than human beings who are complex and have all of their own things going on and, and deserve a certain level of respect and humanity when we're talking about like their professional like outlook. Um, and it's certainly been, you know, a challenge for me over the course of, you know, my career as a as a as a draft writer to pull a lot of this language out of my vocabulary and pull a lot of this mindset out of my vocabulary where players are just being like written off entirely and talked about, I mean, so dismissively and I mean, really in kind of like a disgusting, I, I, I mean, I, I find it to be quite repulsive when, when players are just like talked about like shit, basically. Um, yeah. and, and the combine is really a, a place where this is all very concentrated because you have all these players on display at once you know, they're running the 40 yard dash, they're doing their vertical jumps, they're doing, you know, their bench press. And it's an opportunity for, you know, these draft analysts to get on air and and really talk about these players like they're pieces of meat while these players are getting projected up on the screen. Um, and, you know, there there's certainly and like, I won't lie, like, it's like, you know there's like an olympic aspect of it where it's like very cool to see you know some of the best athletes in the world like show off how athletic they are i mean that i mean Mm -hmm. that spectacle is is extremely it's very hard to deny you know the the awesomeness i suppose of that spectacle but it's the way that it's framed um in such like a dehumanizing and objectifying way that makes it just feel not just feel it what, what makes it so you know, dehumanizing for the players and players themselves have talked about how bizarre the experience of the combine is and how kind of disembodying the experience of the combine is because, you know, you're just like surrounded by coaches and front office people and media people talking about like your hand size um, or talking about, you know, your arm length or, or like talking about you in front of you to other people. Um, and it's, I mean, I can't imagine that it's, it just feels like a very like dehumanizing and disembodying experience for them. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and you know, one thing you made me think that I, I hadn't, hadn't really occurred to me in this way before, but I think is a, is a great insight when you talked about the word raw, right? There's like, there's actually a kind of Cartesian mind body dualism that happens there that I think that we are not cognizant enough when talking about sports, which is to say that like, there's a separation between like let's say, well, first of all, of course, like the intellectual side of sport, which is to say like an understanding of how the game works and strategy and so forth. And um, obviously that's sort of fetishized for certain positions over others and for certain players over others. And that has everything to do with race in terms of how it's talked about. But it's not just that. I think it's also when we even talk about 
like the bodies themselves and skills, right? Like you're going to talk about um, how well, how accurate your passes are. Let's say if you're a quarterback as a skill, perhaps, um, or how precise your route running is for a receiver. That's a skill, right? And that involves the mind as well as the body. But there's a way in which like what, what I think you're getting is like rawness is getting at the fact that, well, are you fast? Are you strong, right? There are these ways in which like they, these, these types of char- physical characteristics, those are somehow entirely of the body and separated from the mind in a certain type of way. Even though inherently like athleticism itself, every part of the way the body works, like these are interconnected things. The person who is an athlete first, as opposed to a position player, right? When you talk about recruiting at the college level, you recruit some people as athletes and other people as players in positions. But like athletes are also embodied subjects. And that athleticism is actually something that they have honed and cultivated themselves. It's not rawness. Like it's not magic through which they achieved that level of athleticism, but it's completely minimized. And we use the word, but like, this is what dehumanization means, right? Like they're not, because to be, of the mind. That is what makes the human ostensibly, right? In this kind of Cartesian split. And so if you're of the body, you're something less than human. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want, I want to expand on something you remarked on regarding how draft speak is racialized and it is specific to this very concept of rawness that we're talking about and the ways in which athletic traits or rather the traits that make a player good um, are attributed to white players versus uh, non-white players. In the case of a white player, uh, you're always going to have some sort of discussion about how they are a gym rat, how they are a coach on the field, how they are, you know, they're a film junkie. That These are the guys who have earned the thing that makes them good through hard work. They have earned their success on the field through hard work, through high character, and through, you know, exceptional intelligence. Uh, and, and that, you know, especially when, you know, a position like quarterback is talked about. But for non-white players, their, their success on the field is often attributed to something that is ontological to them and out completely out of their control. And, I mean, functionally doing a sort of race science where it's like, these are the guys who are more athletic and don't have to work as hard to be fast versus these are the guys who need to be working out every day who, and there is a, there is a, there is a virtuousness in the fact that they are good because they had to work right. very hard to, to be good. And, and that, and that is also like, you know, a racialized language split that, you know, I've always been very aware of and, and I've tried to like be very aware of in my writing because I mean, if you're a professional athlete, you know, and, and I include college players in, in, in this, you know, label of professional athlete, um, mm-hmm. you have to be working exceptionally hard to be any good. That, that goes, that goes uh, without saying, uh, you're not, you're not being, you're, you're not ex- excelling at this level of sport without a, a level of work that 99% of the population is not accustomed to and would probably be horrified by. Um, but and and I think that it's fine to, you know, celebrate work ethic. Um, but when you're weaponizing conversations of work ethic in a racialized way, um, that's when that's where like draft speak can be even further dehumanizing because you're invalidating the hard work that it takes for, you know, a 13 year old, uh, 
you know, kid who loved football, um, working up through high school, working up through college to eventually get drafted to the NFL. That didn't happen accidentally. Um, and, and, and you see it kind of all the time. And I really try to get away from conversations about like, oh, well, these guys have, you know, better work ethic, or this guy has a higher motor than this guy. And another, you know, something I've been really trying to insert into, into my own draft analysis you know, defensive linemen, for example, mm-hmm. you know, defensive linemen are the biggest men on the field, typically. And in college football, your starting four or five defensive linemen are probably going to be the most athletic, the most talented guys on your team. And for most football teams in, in, at the college level, they don't have, you know, a sixth or a seventh guy that they can rotate in and get that same quality of play. So you have these 300 pound men playing a massive amount of snaps at the college level that they typically wouldn't be doing in the NFL because the NFL typically rotates those players a lot more. And we have conversations across the NFL, you know, NFL draft media and, and the draft cycle about, you know, the motors, the quote motors of this, these players and how some of them quote take plays off. And I'm over here thinking, we're talking about 310-pound men who are playing, you know, 60, 70, 80 snaps a game and are not getting paid to do it. And we, we over here have the audacity to sit in an armchair and talk about their work ethic. It's like, give that man an NFL paycheck and, and see, you know, and, and let him only play, you know, half the snaps that he's playing right now at the college level. And all of those work ethic, you know, questions are going to completely go away. So there's an aspect to it where it's very racialized and also, you know, conversations about work ethic are very much there to, you know, punish and reward those who, you know, resist, you know, punish those who kind of resist, you know, the full, the full force of college exploitation and those who are silent about it and aren't, you know, and are, are good soldiers when they're, when they're in college. And I think that's another way that kind of draft speak functions to reinforce not only, you know, harmful, uh, harmful racial dynamics, but also reinforce uh, labor dynamics as well. Yeah, that, that's great stuff. Um, and you were reminding me of something like, you know, years ago, I was doing a little bit of work writing about Jeremy Lin and the way that Jeremy Lin had been represented and this sort of this the way he kind of came to embody the discursive figure of the model minority subject um, in U.S. sports media. Um, and there was like, I remember this vividly, like, I can't remember who the, the journalist was who had um, characterized him this way, but like talking about how in like these breathless terms, you know, Jeremy Lin just, he's in the gym six hours a day working on his game. It's like, well, yeah, like you said, he's a professional athlete. Of course, he's spending six hours a day. That's that's not an eight-hour workday. Like, yeah, he's literally just doing his job. But you're imagining that all those black players in the NBA, they're they're just there because they're raw talent, right? To 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 borrow the terminology, right? They just they just woke up. They just woke up able to be an NBA basketball player, and it's it's like it's the most fundamental form of racism. You said it, race science, right? Like to actually believe that you're just out there thinking. These are different kinds of, these aren't even the same species of human, really, right? There's the, like the naturally athletic one and the one that's not naturally athletic, right? And, and that explains everything about the dynamics in sport. Um, you know, it's just, it's like mind-boggling levels of racism. Um, but those are the same people that don't have a racist bone in their body, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, the yeah. 
the other thing I was going to say, and, and you know, this is this is something that sticks very much in my mind uh, because because you know I'm I you know I, I've been watching football my whole life, and you know I'm I'm a Jewish guy, and there's not a lot of not a lot of Jewish football players, um, not not really our game. Uh, and a couple of years ago, there was a Jewish quarterback that came out of UCLA, and he was a very highly touted recruit. What when he was at UCLA, his name was Josh Rosen. Yeah, and he made a lot of waves while he was at UCLA for being a little bit, uh, you know, kind of, you know, supporting the college unionization efforts. Um, he was pretty uh, vocally anti-Trump. And, and I was kind of wondering, I was like, you know, I wonder, you know, if the, you know, kind of the, conser- the very conservative mindset of the league is going to like bite back at this guy. And I remember during the draft pro- process, the ways where, you know, Josh Rosen was called, you know, entitled, was called, you know, was referred to as, you know, he had to go to New York, he had to go to a New York team or a Los Angeles team, um, because he has a quote, coastal personality. Whoa, and I and his his draft prospect was kind of weighed against uh, Sam Darnold, who was playing at USC. So they were playing in the same city. And People were literally calling um, Sam Darnold blue collar versus calling Josh Rosen had it, having a quote coastal personality, and it's like these dudes played high school football thirty minutes away from each other in Orange County. Um, Sam Darnold is the grandson of the Marlboro Man. Uh, <laughs> like, like this guy, I mean, I mean, this this man is you know Sam Darnold was he personifies blue collar right you know, there, rich yeah. white guy from from one of the richest parts of of California, and it's like even this white player, you know, Josh Rosen, who had the audacity to kind of you know even slightly critique the nature of college football and like you know poke at Donald Trump, you know, the, the, the God King of, you know, 30 of the 32 NFL owners, um, was lambasted with like, I mean, pretty much like anti-Semitic, you know, evaluation. Mm -hmm. And then his NFL career was like completely tanked by mismanagement. Um, and you know, it kind of sucks to, to have seen that, but it just goes to show that, you know, not only are these the draft speak used as a way to kind of reinforce um, these like harmful racial dynamics, but like the NFL and the NFL media will do what it can to like protect itself from criticism and, and like harm those who are willing to call out um, what is harmful about, you know, this whole process. Um, And, and, you know, the, the privileges of being a white quarterback can be taken away from you very, very quickly. If you have the audacity uh, to, to question, you know, the power structures that, that you're, you're partaking in. Yeah, that that's well said. And, and just one more piece about the draft and about the media angle that you were getting at there, because something that recently came to my attention about the draft is the fact that ESPN's coverage, right, at times spectacularizes the experiences of the players being picked, despite the fact that they're deriving, of course, no economic benefit whatsoever from the draft broadcast. And for instance, in one draft a couple of years ago, a graphic on the screen listed the player's athletic bona fides, of course, as you would expect, and then added, quote, mom fought drug addiction for 16 years. What the hell is going on there? And how do you parse the ethics of that? Well, it's, cer- it's certainly not ethical. And it's something that, 
I think has always been at the it, like in, as an undercurrent in NFL draft coverage as, as long as NFL draft coverage has been a primetime event. But I recently it really started coming to like becoming really aggressive in the last three years. I think the 2020 draft was the first draft where I, f- I felt like every other player they were talking about, you know, a family member who died when they were young or, you know, a car accident that they themselves got into or someone in their family was addicted to drugs, you know, and it's, I mean, it's trauma porn. That's, that's what it is. Yeah, there you right. Go. There you go. And, and who does it serve? Well, it serves the viewer because, you know, the viewer wants to feel good that these, that these young men are finally getting a chance to do something with their lives. Uh, and they've come from such hardship and it really feeds into, you know, going, going back to what you were talking about with the golden carrot model, right? You know, you're a journalist. I'm a journalist. I'm also an actor. I know how much the mythology of the highest levels of these, of these industries play so much into how much work we rationalize for ourselves and rationalize for other people. You know, you know, everybody who gets into these industries are doing it so they can be an NFL draft pick or if you're a journalist so they can win a a Pulitzer or if you're an actor so you can win a Tony or an Oscar or an Emmy. And, you know, the the hundreds of hours, the thousands of hours of unpaid labor, underpaid labor that you put yourself through because there is this mythology around the highest levels of the thing that you do. I mean, it's. It's all, I mean, it, it all serves like it's, it's a, it's a perfect encapsulation of like what American capitalism is. It's like, we are selling you a dream and you are going to hurt yourself in order to get it. You're not actually going to get it. You're going to fall somewhere in the margins where you're like, okay, at your job and you're just skating by, but like that dream will always be there. Uh, and I bring that up cause I want, you know, bring it back to, you know, this, this kind of trauma porn that the NFL draft goes through as a spectator from the outside, as we're watching all of these things happen, we're all kind of like presently aware of like, it's, this is a little weird. This is, oh, it's a, it's a draft. We're drafting young men into the NFL. Um, but then you see, you see, you see how horrible their lives have been. And you're like, oh, the NFL is doing a charity and bringing them aboard. The NFL is doing them, is doing them a good service um, in terms of, of, of bringing them in and giving them a paycheck after all these years, all these hard years that they've had to live. And it, it's like, you know, the NFL painting itself as this like benevolent boss, um, where it's like, you should be grateful that we're bringing you in. And we're going to make all of these fans aware of how grateful you should be to us because we're finally pulling you out of poverty. Uh, and that's really, I think that's really what it is. It's It's about... It's it's like, you know, a different angle of this golden carrot model where everyone who's watching you chase that golden carrot also has to feel good about themselves as well. Yes. I mean, amen to that. And that's actually what Berlant calls uh, cruel optimism is another way of putting that kind of idea of the yeah. golden carrot or the dream. And, and that's that's really what it is. And you're exactly right. We see it in so many professions. And it it's ultimately it's this idea of the American dream and what they're doing with those chirons or whatever. They're they're like. They're just justifying, you know, American capitalism and they're, they're perpetuating this myth that the hard work does pay off. Well, we know that the people who are show, like who are appearing on the grant on the draft, like they are the unbelievably lucky few in the grand scheme of those who are like sort of trying to find some kind of material socioeconomic opportunity and uplift through sport. Right. It just it's it's not um, a realistic avenue of social mobility. Uh, but it's certainly sold as one. Yes. Um, 
And the other thing is, you know, you keep using the way you were using the word draft there, I think, you know, you're cleverly making me think of another kind of draft um, with respect to the military. And, and that's something that has been in the news recently in a way that I think we should address. Um, not because it's about the, you know, the NFL draft, but because it's <laughs> another window into the absolutely just depraved dynamics of college sport in the United States. And so um, in reporting just a couple days ago, maybe even yesterday, from Eben Navi Williams and Daniel Libet in Sportico, I want to quote here for a moment because, I, I mean, I, I can't even paraphrase it. I just got a quote from them. The U.S. military is actively discussing an initiative proposed by a defense contractor to fund athletic scholarships for tens of thousands of college athletes each year in exchange for their mandatory service. The Scholar Athlete Intelligence and Leadership Program, as it is christened in Orchestra's Brief, suggests that DOD offered to replace school-funded athletic scholarships for every sport other than football and basketball at the collegiate level. Well, we're talking NCAA, NAIA, and junior college. Those athletes would have no obligations while in school, but would be committed to a yet-to-be-determined amount of service after they're done. And then as the kicker here, we have Jack Swarbrick, athletic director at Notre Dame, uh, and parenthetically, someone who was uh, who has a role that he played in the horrific um, sexual violence scandals uh, in USA Gymnastics, and that he worked for the law firm to which um, information about Larry Nassar was reported when it should have been reported to federal authorities. But anyway, that's parenthetical. Jack Swarbrick was initially shocked when a reporter described the proposal, but suggested he would be open-minded if it gained steam. Says Swarbrick, we happen to have one of the more vibrant ROTC programs in the country, so we're already involved in the military. I have about 101 questions, but would I listen? Sure. <laughs> so, the U.S. military in league with universities. What do you make of that? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's perfect, isn't it? I, <laughs> I mean, it's horrible, but I mean, what a, what a perfect metaphor for, you know, how this country allocates its funds um, and and the ways in which in the in the ways in which you know we hold social mobility over people's heads using mandatory service in some of our most violent institutions, uh, college sports and the military. And you know, I you tweeted this out a few days ago, and you know, I quote tweeted you basically saying this, but it, it bears repeating on here. The the U.S. military is funded by our tax dollars. You know, it's a $800 billion, you know, every, every year for the U.S. military in tax dollars. I think overall defense spending, you know, including all of like the intelligence agencies and whatnot has been calculated somewhere around $1.3 trillion every year. And annual, annual, that's wild. Right. It's the every one year, site of bipartisan year. consensus, one right? Exactly. And it's a trillion dollars every single year for, for, uh, you know, our, 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 our brave, our bravest boys. Um, and theoretically, theoretically, those tax dollars could be, you know, moved to, I don't know, education and you could create, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of scholarships for, people across the country to just go to college for free if you you know if you want to allocate the money to do so that would be kind of the the logical and and humane thing to do but 
in this case, you are trafficking tax dollars through the military in order to coerce college athletes or prospective college athletes um, into, you know, signing on to mandatory service in exchange for a free college education where they would actually be spending most of their college education, you know, in a weight room, um, in a film room, on a practice field. So, you know, the extremely predatory ways that the, you know, the U.S. military tries to bring in recruits is, is extremely well documented in terms of, you know, disproportionately having recruiting offices in, in some of the poorest parts of the country, um, you know, recruiting in, in poorer high schools and, you know, lowering the age in which kids can actually sign on. You can be 17 years old and commit to military service, you know, well before your brain is fully developed, well before you know what you actually want to do in your life. Um, but apparently that isn't enough. So now you're going to have a situation where second tier high school athletes who might not have the best prospects in terms of colleges that they can get into, but high school athletes nonetheless who have spent, you know, so much of their young lives working towards, you know, an athletic scholarship that would put them through college now have to, or in this case, would have to uh, say, I'm going to, I will do this. I will get my college, you know, I will get a college scholarship, but I will also serve, you know, two years in the military, three years in the military. Um, and it's, it's a problem that the military has had to face in in the last, you know, in the last decade where general economic uplift and, you know, expansion of other industries have had people turn away from joining the military. I mean, recruitment has been very hard because it doesn't seem finance, doesn't make financial sense a a lot of the time for people to go into the military, especially with like, you know, kind of how bad the wars have been going. But this is an opportunity for them to, you know, expand into another way. You know, if it wasn't enough that they were trying to recruit kids through like esports, now they're going to be recruiting kids through college sports as well. Yeah, yeah, you, you hit it. It's 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 incredibly bleak. Um, they got you, now you got two forms of indentureship for the price of one, right? So you you yes. indenture to the university for the athletic labor, and you get indentured to the military for military service. Also, you can get an education. Um, the land of the free. That's what the United States. Right. Is. And, and you can come out of your 20s having a completely broken body and PTSD. And, and now you there get you to go. be a functional member of society after that. Yeah, no, exactly. Like there's irony in how we're talking about this, but truly it is. It's like it is just painful to think about. Um, we these, you know, young people in this country deserve so much better um, than, than what they've been given. Um, so, you know, anyway, hopefully this, uh, hopefully this proposal dies on the vine, but, um, we'll have to, we'll have to follow it. Uh, okay. They have the service academies, you know, know. they literally have service academies where they play college football and those guys all have to go to the military. And then you also have BYU where 85% of those guys end up in the FBI anyway. So it's like, you already have have your pipelines. It's like, do you really want it? You really want more? And it's. I mean, it just goes to show, like, I mean, how just disgusting the U.S. military is in every way possible. Exactly. Because these, these folks won't get off. These aren't off. This isn't officer training. So they're no. going to end up in, like, <laughs> less you're, you're advantageous positions. Yeah. That's exactly it. Right. You'd rather end up going to the academies um, if this is the route you were choosing, right? So this is, like, the worst option. 
for for athletes. Yeah, it's yeah, terrible. yeah. It's like we're we're getting we're getting guys through the academies, but but like those aren't the guys that we're going to send out to die. So we need we need more of those guys. Oh man. Oh jeez. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the other thing we both love so dearly, which is uh, name, image, and likeness. This will be the last thing we hit on today. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So last year you wrote uh, in a great piece, quote, NIL provisions outsource compensation to third parties and put the onus of earning anything on the athletes themselves. This not only keeps benefits unregulated and uneven, putting the athlete at risk for further exploitation, but also plain old makes them do more work. I mean, big time cosign on that. I think that's exactly what's happening with NIL. But last night, we had a really interesting development. I think it's worth talking about. That's caused the mainstream college sports media to absolutely lose their collective minds. Jonathan Giovanni, ESPN's draft pundit, tweeted, and this is important because this is where the news came from. He tweeted, Miami's Isaiah Wong will enter the NCAA transfer portal tomorrow if his NIL compensation isn't increased, his agent Adam Pappas told ESPN. Quote, Isaiah would like his NIL to reflect that he was a leader of an Elite Eight team. All right, so that was the news. We have a player who has decided that he wants to leverage his performance into more compensation. Well, analysts like Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic wrung their hands that, quote, this is not NIL, by the way. We all need to stop calling it that. It's pay for play. He's literally saying he deserves more money based on his encore performance. Others, like Kevin Sweeney of Sports Illustrated, wondered, what happens the first time a kid who's playing well threatens midseason to sit out until his NIL gets bumped up? Bobby Reagan of Barstool added, what happens the first time players boycott a Final Four? What happens, Ben? Yeah, <laughs> is, this, is this, this the is, end of college sport as we know it? The, the, like the Simpsons, the Simpsons screenshot where the guy's like imagining people of all countries holding hands and there's like, <laughs> it's like, that's what happens. That, that's, that, that is what happens when players start to decide that. Yeah, I think it goes, you know, it, it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is college football, you know, the, and the industrial complex that revolves around it is terrified of these players, like awakening to their own agency. Uh, an awakening to the value that they hold based on the performance and based on the work that they put in. And, you, you know, the NIL situation in a lot of cases where you have like, you have like some offensive lineman doing commercials for like a local barbecue or like, you know, getting an endorsement from like a, tr like a, a local like tractor store or something like that, which I kind of find to almost be charming. Um, but, but anyway, it's like, they're doing more work to find those, yeah. to find those endorsements and, you know, to film commercials and do promotional events and do card signings. It's like these, these guys already do so much work to create value for the schools for the NCAA, for the conferences, and for all of the, you know, all of the, the TV stations that cover them. Um, for the NIL to say, well, you can, you can use your name, image, and likeness to go make more money elsewhere while you're also doing this, it, it creates another avenue where they just have to be doing more work. And it has evolved pretty quickly where you have these like high-level recruits getting um getting recruited to these schools and the schools have some sort of you know understanding with a third party that if this college if this high school kid signs with us they're going to get a million dollar endorsement from you know nike or you know some sort of kind of big uh, athletic outfit so 
there is like a pay for play component happening, but that's good. Um, like that's what these kids deserve. That's what these players deserve. They are creating value and they should see value for the work that they're doing on the field. They shouldn't be forced to make more value for themselves in other ways, you know, in promotional events or whatever. Um, that's not fair to them. Um, but it, I mean, just like the, the, the panic that this news has sent people into just goes to show that like this, this could overturn the, like so many of the power dynamics in college football, because this, I mean, you know, despite my criticisms of NIL, it could be a gateway to, to like a, a massive labor awakening among players where they're like, we, we, we're, this is us. We're, we're the ones who are actually doing this and we can withhold our labor. Um, if we do not see the, the, the compensation and the treatment that we'd like. Um, so, you know, the, the, the tears, the tears of, of some of, uh, you know, the, the tears of some of my worst enemies in the media uh, is, is always a good sign that, that these college players are doing the right thing. Um, that's so. right. It's, it's like, it's, it's hilarious actually. Like the way they talk about this, like, can you imagine after one season of improved performance? Now he's like, now he's trying to leverage that into going to another team. You know, like, this is the end of college sport as we know it. This is the end of cap. No, it is capitalism. Like, what happens when a coach has a good year? Then they get an offer from another school, and they get a contract extension. You know what happens when an academic gets another job at another institution? They leverage that into higher pay at their courage institution. You know that I'm not a champion of the free market and of capitalism, but, like, that's actually the system that we're in, right? Like, that's the system that you've all embraced in every other sense. But when it comes to college athletes, that's an absolute no-no, right? Because we view them collectively as a form of indentured labor. And if they're not working for free, then something's fundamentally wrong with the system. Right. And so you have Seth. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I just want to say, like, I, this isn't necessarily to push back on what you just said. But I, I do think that, you know, instead, instead of us talking about, well, like, this is actually the free market. Like, what we're doing is engaging with, a, like, a free market. And this is what capitalism should be. I think it, I think it, it, it actually behooves us to, to point out where it's like, actually, the way that capitalism has always functioned is with this underclass of hard workers yes. with no agency creating right. wealth for these people who do have agency and who can I mean, you know, in the in the case of, of someone like, you know, Brian Kelly, you know, go from factory to factory as he sees fit, whichever factory will pay him more, whichever workers will produce the most money for him. He will go there from year to year with no consequence to himself. In fact, like he's getting paid to leave, you know, he's get, those are the guys who are getting the, the guaranteed contracts and who are making this money anyway. Um, and like this, this is what capitalism is. And, and I think that what people's fear is, cause like, you know, if you work at ESPN or you work at Barstool, it's like some some 19 year old getting a million dollars is not actually going to affect you at all. I mean, it doesn't doesn't affect your job. The sport will no. go on. You will have a sport to cover um, these college. These, these college athletes getting treated better doesn't actually like impact your job. In fact, it might actually make your job better. Um, it, you know, at least in, in my case, like I always have to do like the like I'm always like in a moral con quandary about like I'm like, should I actually be enjoying watching this? Um, and if I knew that these college players would, would, were being treated better, I would like that, that would like less be there. Um, but anyway, it really has to do with the fact that I think that there is an awareness that this is an overturning of the American economic model, uh, in the same way 
that the country has experienced mass waves of people quitting their shitty retail jobs and their shitty service Mm -hmm. jobs um, and sending everybody into a moral panic about how, you know, this generation, quote, doesn't want to work. It's like, no, it's like, you know, theoretically, they're they're engaging in, in, in like their free choice of labor, but really they're overturning the capitalist model, which is, you know, the coercion of a better life or using using the promise of a better life to coerce, you know, young labor into being exploited. And these college athletes aren't going to put up with it anymore. And I, that terrifies, you know, the the gatekeepers and, and placeholders of, of this industry, both, you know, in college football in itself and their allies in the media. Yeah, no, that was such a great summation, actually, of why we need to think about it as through the theoretical concept of racial capitalism, right? Because we have this liberal myth, um, which, you know, the system relies upon, that is to say that we have the existence of a free market and everyone has fair opportunity and there's fair exchanges between capital and the worker and so forth, right? That's the myth. But the reality, as you put it, is that capitalism, through racialization, has always relied upon unfree forms of labor as a form of accumulation. That has always been part of the capitalist model. And what we see here is the panic that ensues for the capitalist class whenever that unfree labor is even remotely further liberated, right? That calls the entire system into crisis. And then suddenly all the lines that have been spouted previously about the free market, right, and about fairness and equity and all that, right, suddenly those things all go away. Because at the end of the day, they never believed or invested in those ideas. Those were just a sort of superstructure for the reality that unfree labor was at the core of the system. Um, and I think this is, this is a perfect case study in that. So that, that was really terrific that you highlighted that. Um, yeah, and, and I, I just go want, on. sorry, I, I, I want to make sure that we're placing this conversation in, in the larger context of, a, a, of an American labor awakening that is currently happening. Um, and it's quite exciting and it is quite heartening. You know, I, I think y- you and I, you're, you're, yours and my uh, political disposition tends to lend to some pessimism generally. Um, but I, I find myself quite heartened by, you know, seeing what's happening with Starbucks unionization efforts, seeing what's yes. happening with Amazon unionization efforts. You know, all of these like people leaving, leaving their jobs, leaving, leaving jobs that aren't treating them well. And there is there is a there is a labor and political awakening happening among a certain generation of Americans and college athletes are very much a part of that. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, the ways in which, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic has further stratified and, you know, increased the fault lines in our society. It also has increased our awareness of those fault lines um, and, you know, and our awareness of those stratifications. And that has, you know, spurned on this this awareness of the value that we hold as workers and and, you know, the ways that college athletes are now taking advantage of that awareness. I mean, it's it's incredible to see. And I, I think that they deserve a lot of credit for their ability to stand on their talent and say like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take this anymore. And I do, I hope that that continues to happen. Absolutely. You know, Hamilton Nolan wrote, I think it was last year, um, thinking about sort of increased unionization movements, what better vanguard essentially to unionization in the South than college football players, right? Like that, that's the next perfect sort of frontier for this movement. And, and I hope it's something that we're going to see in the near future. 
Uh, ben, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.